Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with the journalist and writer Nathan Thrall about his book from last year called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. So I did not get to join you for this interview, and I haven't read the book. So can you tell me just a little bit what it's about? Yes. So this book, I would really recommend it to anyone. I have not done much reading about Israel and Palestine even after the conflict, I've been listening to, you know, podcasts and, but I haven't, I haven't read a book yet that explains things to me. And this is a, an account of an accident that took place on the outskirts of Jerusalem in 2012, where a school bus collided with a semi trailer and caught in fire, a school bus full of kindergarten students. And the man of the title, Abed Salama, his son was among the students. And it takes us through the story of, of the day and what happened. And it also brings us back into Abed Salama's life and kind of how he got to where he was. He had been a part of the PLO, but he, that was all just circumstantial through his family. He wanted to study law. He ended up working for a telephone company in Jerusalem and he, wasn't able because of the this kind of passport system of green cards and blue cards he wasn't able after the accident to go look for his son because his mobility within where he lives is so limited oh. like many many people in these parts kind of more ambiguous parts of between israeli authority and palestinian authority so it walks you through the tragedy and it becomes a microcosm of the relationship between Palestine and Israel and a lot of history in there. And you begin to see how the occupation of this land and these people really affects every single aspect of this accident, why it happened, how it came to a conclusion. It's a very succinct way of understanding what life is like pre-war in this region. I can't wait to listen to this conversation and also to read the book, because what I love, so, exactly what you're saying, what I love so much about stories like this is that they take a concrete reality that helps to articulate these more abstract things or longer historical things that we think about in terms of the political realities of a place like Israel and Palestine. So I'm really fascinated to read this and to see kind of how those big picture realities kind of cash out in like one particular tragedy. Yeah, it's a really good book. I highly recommend it. All right. Well, let's not delay any longer and get right to that interview. Okay. to be joined today by the writer Nathan Thrall. Nathan Thrall is the author of the book, The Only Language They Understand, Forcing Compromise in Israel and Palestine, and his criticism and reporting have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the London Review of Books, The Guardian, and the New York Review of Books. For many years, he served as the director of the Arab-Israeli Project for the International Crisis Group. He joins me from Jerusalem, where he lives. He's here to talk about his recent book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy, which was published last October and named one of the best books of the year by The New Yorker, The Economist, The New Republic, and The Financial Times. 
It is an account of a horrific accident that took place in the outskirts of Jerusalem on a rainy day in 2012 when a school bus full of kindergarten students on their way to a class trip collided with a semi-trailer and caught on fire. Thrall follows the lives of a number of people who are directly impacted by the tragedy, delving into their past and the ways in which the decades-old conflict between Israel and Palestine has indelibly shaped their trajectories. Chief among them is Abed Salama, a Palestinian and father of five-year-old Milad, who is a passenger on the bus. In looking closely at the material conditions of Salama's life and the way they play out within the worst circumstances imaginable, Thrall evinces the toll of occupation in the most human of terms. Thank you so much, Nathan, for being here. Thank you for having me. So I just want to start with talking about where the accident happened. I'm wondering if you can describe the road that it took place on a little bit, where it is, and under whose jurisdiction it is, and maybe just a little bit more about the area where Abed lives and who controls it. So I'm going to start with a very macro view before I come in to the road. So the macro view is that in the territory of historic Palestine, Israel is the sole sovereign. And they have, Israel has given limited autonomy to Palestinians in 165 little pockets of autonomy in the West Bank as well as Gaza. And those pockets are disconnected from one another in the West Bank. And they're surrounded by a sea of Israeli control. And just to give you kind of a numerical picture, the West Bank and Gaza are 22% of the territory under Israel's control, 22% of historic Palestine. And the total area that Palestinians have limited autonomy in is about 10% of the area under Israel's control. Now, within the West Bank, surrounding these 165 little islands of limited Palestinian autonomy is what is known as Area C, which is under full Israeli control and jurisdiction. And this road is within Area C. And all the settlements are in Area C, and all the roads that Israelis would typically use are in Area C. And this road is just uh, north of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem itself has a few different statuses. So East Jerusalem was annexed by Israel in 1967, and so were the lands of over two dozen surrounding villages. And one of those villages is called Anata, and about half of Anata was annexed by Israel and made part of Jerusalem, and the other half was not. And this school exists, the school that these kindergartners were going to, is in the unannexed part of Anatta, which is totally surrounded by walls. It's mm. surrounded by a 26-foot-tall concrete wall on three sides. And then on a fourth side, there's a different kind of wall, which is the wall running through a segregated road called Route 4370, famously known as the Apartheid Road. And the school bus left this walled enclave and traveled through a checkpoint, went basically alongside this wall, headed north toward Ramallah. And after passing a checkpoint, they were in Area C under full Israeli control, and they were struck by a giant semi-trailer, and the bus flipped over and caught fire. So this area where the accident took place 
It was originally built actually by Israel for settlers. It was a one of these so-called bypass roads. So the settlements, there's an effort to kind of create an illusion of Jewish contiguity from Israel and West Jerusalem to the settlements. And so you have these kind of highways that are cutting through Palestinian villages. And often the Palestinian villages don't even have a road to access these highways. And these roads are known by Israelis as bypass roads because they're bypassing the Palestinian communities and allowing the settlers to quickly access Israel. And this bypass road was originally built for settlers, and later a better bypass road was built for them, and this bypass road turned into a road used mainly by Palestinians. And so that's why this bus was on this road that's still under full Israeli control. And the people who live in this area around where the accident took place have all kinds of different statuses based on where they were born. And so the two main ones that they have are green West Bank IDs or blue Jerusalem IDs. And with a blue Jerusalem ID, they're able to travel into Israel and pass through the checkpoints and get to hospitals in Jerusalem. And with a green West Bank ID, you can't do that. You have to apply for a permit and wait a number of days or sometimes longer. And then if you're accepted to get a permit to come and look for a job or to work or to go to a medical appointment in Jerusalem. And so the bystanders who were near the site of the accident had either green or blue IDs, and that had profound consequences for these kids on the day that the accident took place because the bystanders were really the ones who, who rescued the kids. And it was more than a half an hour before the first Israeli fire truck came. And the bystanders were taking these kids and putting them in the back seats of their cars. And those who had blue IDs would drive towards Superior Jerusalem hospitals mm -hmm. because they could access them. And those who had green IDs went in the opposite direction toward the hospitals in Ramallah. And the parents themselves also had green or blue IDs, depending on which part of this walled enclave they lived in, whether they were in the annexed part that's part considered part of sovereign Israel that's within East Jerusalem or the unannexed part of the enclave. It's very complicated. It's a bizarre, bizarre place. And when you see it, I mean, you see how, how both complex it is, but also how simple it is, because the basic idea is pushing Palestinians out of Jerusalem and giving as much of it to Jewish settlements as possible. And so that's simple and that's evident. But when you dig down and you learn about all the permits and the rules and which roads and which checkpoints and all of that, that becomes very complicated. Yeah. And in this case, as you say, the fire trucks didn't arrive for over half an hour. And that is possibly, you know, what led to the severity of the results of this accident, which was that six people died. So why weren't fire trucks coming? And if that happened, for instance, in the United States, that someone was that lax in terms of an accident response, there would be, I would imagine, repercussions. In this case, were there any repercussions in, in terms of, I don't know, litigation or anything that the fire trucks did not arrive until half an hour later? 
No, there were no repercussions. And the people who live on the other side of the wall of this 26 foot tall gray concrete wall are entirely neglected. Some of them are living in areas that, despite being on the other side of the wall, are still considered sovereign Israel, are annexed areas. Some of them are in unannexed areas, but all of them are entirely neglected. And the emergency services won't even enter these areas without a police escort. And so the lateness of the fire trucks in this particular incident instance was not something unique. I mean, there had been many other incidents in which emergency services did not arrive in time to areas on the other side of the wall or where you had fire trucks. This has happened after the accident. You had fire trucks waiting at a checkpoint, the Columbia checkpoint, while there was a fire in a neighborhood just north of it, Kufar Akab. And again, the people who lived around that fire were left to fend for themselves because the this particular fire I'm talking about was, again, within municipal Jerusalem. And so the Palestinian authority, the limited autonomy that the Palestinians have, isn't even allowed to operate in municipal Jerusalem, isn't allowed to operate in these areas that are totally neglected on the other side of the wall. So... Yeah, this is the condition of hundreds of thousands of people who are just a couple miles away from where I'm sitting right now. Can you talk a little bit more about these areas that are part of Area C, which I believe like the, forgive me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, the Shuafat refugee camp? Is that an Area C? Places that you describe in the book that seem like there are no resources there, not even a bank, and also that there, you know, criminals are able to operate with impunity because there really aren't going to be consequences and no one will come and no one's overseeing anything happening. So most of the parents and the children in the accident live within this walled enclave. And that walled enclave has two main communities in it. It has the town of Anatta and its neighborhoods, and it has the Shuafat refugee camp. And so this is a, a refugee camp containing Palestinian refugees from the 1948 war, walled off, but within the middle of the city of Jerusalem. And you have this walled ghetto right there inside Jerusalem, and they have... You know, all the Palestinians in East Jerusalem have a shortage of classrooms, but they have an especially acute crisis with education in Shuafat. And the parents who live there, you know, they, the classroom shortage is so severe that they were having the school operate in shifts. And you'd use the same classroom several times a day. And the parents who lived in this community basically were faced with a choice of either sending their kids through a checkpoint and confronting soldiers every morning and every afternoon to get to the schools on the other side of the wall, or instead sending their kids, if they could afford it, to a private school that's not even inside municipal Jerusalem, that's in the unannexed part of this enclave, which was the case with this this particular school, Nur al-Huda, because they didn't want to send their kids through a checkpoint every morning. This whole walled ghetto has about 130,000 people in it today. They don't have a single ATM. They do not have a single playground. There are no sidewalks. The streets are filled with potholes. People are 
burning their trash in the streets. They're receiving very few municipal services. And half of the people in this enclave are paying taxes to to the Jerusalem municipality and getting almost nothing in return. So that is the life of these people who live within Jerusalem and live in fear of having their Jerusalem residency revoked. Because if they were to move to a, you know, a few blocks down to a cheaper house in Anatta, they're outside of municipal Jerusalem suddenly. They're in the unannexed part of this enclave. And they are at risk of having their Jerusalem residency revoked. And what that means is that they can no longer pass through the checkpoints. They can't visit family on the other side. They can't go to workplaces on the other side. The higher paying jobs are on the other side. They can't go to places of worship on the other side of the wall. And so what happened when they created this wall was there was a huge influx of people who couldn't afford housing on the better side of the wall in Jerusalem. And so they started to erect these giant towers right next to the wall that were on these pieces of land that were still considered municipal Jerusalem because everybody had a desire to keep their blue ID, that their jobs depended on, that their health insurance depended on, that their the schools that they were sending their kids depended on. And so now today, when you pass by this wall, you see these huge towers which are haphazardly built and largely unregulated because all the people within them are, they need to have a claim to be living with their center of, quote unquote, center of life within Jerusalem. And Israel will send municipal inspectors to go and check that these people really are in these homes. Most of the time they will enter the home unannounced, and they will come and look through your clothes and say, you know, these towels look dusty. This is not really your house. You clearly have a house somewhere else because there is a desire to reduce the number of Palestinians in Jerusalem and to increase the proportion of Jews in Jerusalem. And so on the day of the accident, Abed did not have the blue card. So his search for his son Milad, who was in the accident, was limited. Maybe you could talk about, you know, the immediate repercussions for him of not having the right card and not being able to... How did it impact the way he was able to look for Milad, his son, who who he couldn't find after the accident? Because Abed had the misfortune of being born a couple blocks, you know, away from the line that Israel drew and said, we're annexing this territory, this piece of Anatta, he didn't get a blue ID. He had a green ID. And he, like other parents, rushed to the accident site. And when he got there, all the kids had already been evacuated by these bystanders. And he asked, you know, where are the kids? And he hears rumors from different people in the crowd. They're all telling him different answers. Some are saying that they're at the Israeli military base that's just a minute up the road. Some are saying that they're at an East Jerusalem hospital. Some are saying they're at a West Jerusalem hospital. Some are saying that they're at a Ramallah hospital. 
And he couldn't go to most of those places with his green ID. He certainly couldn't go in an Israeli military base. He couldn't go in West Jerusalem. He couldn't go to the East Jerusalem hospitals. And so he went to the only place that he, he could go, which was the Ramallah hospital and, and tried to find his, his son there. And when he didn't find his son after searching through all the rooms at the Ramallah hospital, he called on relatives who did have a blue ID because in every family in this enclave, you have some of the people have blue IDs, some of them have green IDs. And he called on relatives who did have blue IDs to go and check for his son at the hospitals in Jerusalem. When this happened in 2012, were you aware of the story at the time? And if not, how did you find the story later and then write about it? I was aware of the story. I was actually driving in the West Bank with a colleague on the morning of that accident. We heard the news on the radio. There was a national, three days of national mourning that were called by the Palestinian Authority. And it was in the news in Israel, but it didn't last very long. It was just kind of a blip in the, in the Hebrew press. But it's something that Palestinians in the West Bank never forgot. It was a really horrific and tragic event. But it wasn't until years later that I went and, and started to talk to all of the people connected to the accident, from the you know bus driver to the parents to the teachers to the you know doctors and nurses and even the founder of the uh, the settlement next to where it took place. And what was it about? I mean, it's such a harrowing story. And as a parent, yeah, it's very hard to read. But I can imagine that there must be many stories like this where the jurisdictions and the lines complicate a tragedy or, you know, clearly just from the book, complicate in every case, almost everyone's lives. So what was it about this particular story that made you want to delve as deep as you have in the book? I have kind of two answers to this question, which are a bit contradictory. And one is, I believe that if you take a dart and you throw it at a map of Israel-Palestine and you decide to start digging in that place, you can basically unearth the entire story of Israel-Palestine in that one place. That said, this particular location was a big part of the interest for me in telling the story because it had the story of Jerusalem. It had the story of annexation. It had the story of Area C. It had the story of the settlements and the bypass roads. It had the story of the apartheid road. It had the, the town of Anatta has had virtually, this isn't true of every Palestinian town in the West Bank, has had virtually every means of Israeli land confiscation applied to it you know, settlements built on it, there are outposts built on it, there's a military base on it, there's a segregated road on it. And so a big part of the interest for me was in the location which allowed me to really explain this whole elaborate system. And so much of the settlement project is centered around Jerusalem. A huge number of the settlers are in Jerusalem or in the greater Jerusalem area. It's the number one priority for settlement for Israel. And so I also thought it was important to make the story really 
about Jerusalem. And, you know, Abed grew up in Jerusalem. Abed, through his own life story, you know, I was able to tell kind of the entire Palestinian story since 1967. He was an activist in the First Intifada. He was a leader of a left-wing faction, the DFLP. He was arrested and tortured. He was in jail in Ketziot prison in the First Intifada. So through his story, I felt that I was would be able to kind of tell the entire story of Israel-Palestine. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. I've been speaking with Nathan Thrall, author of A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Dr. Kohei Saito back on the line with us. Dr. Saito is the author most recently of Slow Down, The Degrowth Manifesto, and he joins us today for this week's book recommendation. So Dr. Saito, what book are you recommending? One of the books that I want to recommend is the book that I was most influenced in my life, uh, which is Naomi Klein's No Logo. Mm. It really changed my perception of as an undergraduate student, I used to like to buy sneakers and, you know, all those kind of uh, popular items. But I realized after reading that book, I actually realized that I'm, I'm paying for nothing. <laughs> kind of the illusion that is created by brands. And the problem is under the illusion, there is some kind of exploitation of the people in the global south and the constant destruction of the environment and so on. And this is really the beginning that I started to questioning the kind of capitalist progress and the capitalist affluence. And I started to pay attention to what is hidden under my own happy life. And so this is a very good way to start with something near around your life uh, to question what is really good about capitalist life. I feel that's like a great a great way of describing almost all of Naomi Klein's work is like a kind of a large argument that gets packaged in a very like easy to understand um, book that then fundamentally changes the way that you see that thing. And I'm curious what you found in No Logo, you know, because that, that book is a lot about globalization as well as branding, like, right, how branding impacts globalization. And I'm wondering if you kind of see a reinvestment in interest among younger generations today. You know, because it's interesting, when I talk to younger people, people, let's say, in their 20s, a lot of them do, while they are very brand aware, there is increasingly an interest on both buying things that are produced more sustainably, but also which are not first and foremost branded. So I'm curious if you see a similar thing or if that's kind of something that you think maybe has is still not quite uptaken by the mainstream yet. I mean, even the Generation Z, many people are obsessed with fast fashion. And, you know, if you look at TikTok and Instagram, they're still full of new branding ways of uh, mm-hmm. uh, unnecessary products. So no logo has been, was written like many, many years ago now. But I think the core message is still quite valid. And the power of capitalism is still there. Like, you know, we came to realize 
today that, you know, capitalism is not simply about exploiting the poor people. And this climate crisis is very serious because of the globalized system. But still, we are fascinated by new items that we keep consuming. We are compelled in some way. But at the same time, it's always good to have consciousness of what is actually going on. And I think No Logo is a very good introduction to what's really going on under capitalism. That sounds great. Can you give us the author and title one more time, please? Naomi Klein, No Logo. Thank you so much. That has been Dr. Kohei Saito, author most recently of Slow Down, The Degrowth Manifesto. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Nathan Thrall, author of A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. And that's the kind of amazing thing is that it starts off so closely on Abed and you feel that his story is very exceptional because of his activism, also because of his family's position in Anata, of having been part of this one major family, having owned a lot of land and then having much of yep. it confiscated. But the more the book opens up to all these other stories, you see that everyone has been so touched and it somehow seems through your reporting very integral to this story. But Abed is still, to me, is very exceptional in the book. And you go so deep into his past in a way that, of course, connects the reader to him. Maybe you could just talk a little bit more about his family's place in Anata and about his trajectory from his activism to then. Now it seems like, you know, he has a job with the phone company. I don't know if he still does, but at the time of the reporting he did, he's maybe seems more of a of an average citizen these days. Yeah. So within Anata, there are, you know, a few major families and Abbott comes from the biggest one, the Salama family. And he has many very important members of his family who he has two grandfathers who were both at different times, the Mukhtar, the kind of village leader. He, as you say, they owned a lot of the land in Anato, which was taken by Israel. There's a, now a, a major military base that's on their, their family land. And I think that what you're, what you're touching on is that he is both comes from a, you know, a very prestigious family within Anata, but it is also just kind of a very, ordinary person. He's just kind of falls into becoming the leader of the DFLP. It's his brother-in-law is, was the real activist who was arrested, and it was handed to him at a very young age. And he had lots of, you know, ordinary jobs in construction and working for the Israeli phone company and driving a taxi. So part of the story is that you can come from the most elite family in a town like Anatta and living under occupation, you're going to work in, in construction. I mean, today we have within the Palestinian Authority, the security forces, you know, one the most plum job that you can get within the Palestinian government is like being some member of the Palestinian security forces. Those people who are much better paid than others in the West Bank 
they are going on the weekends and working in Israel as construction workers. They're like captains and commanders with all these guys underneath them. And on the weekend, they're just like, you know, working construction inside Israel because the discrepancy in pay is so great. They can make so much more money just doing a day of work or two days of work on the weekend. You know, it's a testament to just how stark the disparities are between Jewish Israelis and Palestinians. Yeah, I thought someone else that really evinced that was Huda Dabor, who yeah. was the doctor who originally found the bus, or you yeah. know, who was one of the first people to start trying to evacuate the children. And her story, her son, as a teenager, had written some anti-Israeli graffiti and was then placed in jail for, I don't know, I can't remember how long, 18 months, was on and went through all these trials. And again, coming from this perspective of being a parent, imagining what she went through with her son, watching him on trial, seeing that he had been tortured. Very shocking that that would be the, the recourse for graffiti. Yeah. And this is, you know, the reality for every Palestinian family in the West Bank. You know, they are living with the kind of daily fear that this could be the night that soldiers come at 1.30 in the morning, like they did to Huda's home, and bang on the door and demand their adolescent child and take them and, and imprison them. And it can be for throwing stones or anti-occupation graffiti. So for me, it was really important to tell, you know, Huda's story because it really showed what it is to be a parent in this place. And this was the worst year and a half of Huda's life. And she saw it coming from a mile away, you know, when she took her, she was forced to take her son out of a school in Jerusalem and into a school in a town called Abu Dis. And there was a lot of harassment of the kids in this area. It was an area right next to West Bank University. Soldiers were there a lot. And there was stone throwing at the soldiers and the soldiers were harassing the kid, the high school kids at the school. And Huda just saw that he's going to start hanging out with these boys. They're going to throw stones, obviously, at these tanks and he's going to get arrested. And she felt totally powerless to do anything to protect him. Yeah, even the driver of the semi-trailer who is going to get limestone, forgive me if this isn't correct, but from Palestinian land, extracting limestone from Palestinian land for Israeli use because of the decision that that was okay by an Israeli judge. You know, it seems like Every part of the story has some mark of inequity. Absolutely. They're all living and breathing this system of oppression. And it has profound consequences for all of them. It's not, you know, just an abstract set of rules that they need to navigate. It's having your boy taken from you in the middle of the night. It's working for an employer who's extracting natural resources from your people's land. It's 
not being able to access a hospital where you're told that your son has been taken after a terrible bus accident. At one point for Abed, it's also even choosing his marriage partner. I mean, he chooses a marriage partner based on the color of her ID in order to try and get a chance at himself getting a blue ID and thereby keeping his higher paying job in Jerusalem. I wonder, you know, for you, the kind of reactions you've gotten from the book, I don't know if it was published in Israel, but, you know, to me, it seems like the book is so close to the people it's covering and it it doesn't really reflect ideology. It just seems to reflect very, very close reporting. But clearly there is some, you you know, living in Israel, there does seem like there's a, a shift in consciousness to be looking so closely at the Palestinian stories as opposed to, it's like you're telling the story from the other side, should we say. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, you know, what kind of reactions you've you've gotten maybe in Israel or from people who have read the book there, who you're close with there. So, so far, the book is available at bookstores here in English, but um, it hasn't been translated into Hebrew or Arabic yet. One of the reviews that I'm most proud of for the book was by an Israel Prize winner, a prominent professor who writes frequently for the New York Review of Books named David Shulman. And he comes from what is considered the very far left here. He's a devoted activist. He spends his weekends going and trying to protect Bedouin shepherds from attacks by settlers. This is something he's been doing for years with a group called Ta'ayush. So he's not, you know, Mr. Joe Israeli. (laughs) But, you know, those who have read the book, I've felt like have engaged with it as I wanted them to, have actually learned. I've had Israelis say to me, it's amazing how little we know about their lives. And their lives are so different from ours. Even if you leave the occupation out of it, just, you know, how courtship works and how marriage works and those things are totally foreign to the Israeli readers who I spoke to. So, the reactions have been positive, but I have to caveat that by saying that I'm talking to a specific subset of Israelis from the left end of the political spectrum. Mm. How long have you lived in Israel, and why did you decide to move there? I've lived here since 2010. I started with my family since 2011. In 2010, I took a job. I reported a piece for the New York Review of Books that was published in 2010 that was about life in the West Bank and about the U.S. training of Palestinian security forces in the West Bank in order to basically help Israel maintain control. And it was a piece that was critical of this U.S. effort, which was very popular at the time. And there was bipartisan support for it in Washington, and everybody thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I wrote a critical piece about it and how essentially the this whole project was doomed to fail because all it was doing was making uh, prolonged occupation easier and more sustainable. And As a result of that piece, I was offered a job with the International Crisis Group 
which is kind of does on the ground reporting in conflict areas all over the world, like 65 different ones last I checked. And the head of the Middle East program was somebody who wrote a lot for the New York Review of Books himself. His name was Rob Malley. And he offered me a job and asked me where I wanted to go. And I told him I wanted to go to Gaza. And so a couple of weeks later, I was on a plane and I was in Gaza and started to work in Gaza for a month and a half, was living there. And when they decided that they liked what I wrote, they offered me a full-time job and I moved to Jerusalem with my family a few months later. I just can't imagine what it's like to live in Israel and yet be reporting on the effects of its policies. It seems like, I mean, many American journalists do the same. It doesn't seem so different in many ways, but it the way that you describe how things are laid out in the West Bank, it also seems schizophrenic. I mean, yeah. it must be difficult. You know, I, I choose not to talk about my work with a lot of people. I have many neighbors who have no idea what it is I do. Some have the vague notion that sometimes I go to Gaza and gone in Gaza for a while and come back. But those would be very unproductive conversations if I really had a real political conversation with mm -hmm. most of my neighbors. So yeah, I, I'm kind of not really a part of either society. I'm not a part of Palestinian society. I'm not a part of Israeli society. And I'm living in this limbo. And how have things changed for you there since the war began in October or the siege? I was, you know, on book tour for when the war broke out. I had several days before the war broke out. My book was published. The war started October 7th. My book was published October 3rd. And I was actually with Abed. Abed Salama and I were doing the book tour together. And we had all kinds of events lined up in the UK and in the US. And this war breaks out, you know, four days into it. And there were a number of cancellations. And in the UK, there was a real, there was kind of a government-led crackdown where they, the week after October 7th, they canceled basically any event that had Palestinian in the title. We had a, an event in London that was sh shut down by the UK police. The UK police had shut down other events that same week, including like a traditional music concert in a church that was going to play Palestinian music. And, you know, Abed just ha couldn't be away from his family. The whole atmosphere in the West Bank, you know, there's so much attention on Gaza, but the situation in the West Bank is horrible right now. Um, the restrictions on movement for Palestinians are worse than they've ever been. And there's a lot of settler violence and people are out of work because as soon as the war started, Israeli employers told the Palestinian workers to stay home. It's a, a really bleak situation in the West Bank right now. So Abed had to leave and um, be with his family. And I asked my wife and three daughters to come and join me in the U.S. So we were in the U.S. together for a couple of months and then we came back here. And things now are kind of beginning to return to routine, but they're not, they're not fully at a routine 
yet. You know, their reservists are called up in large numbers still, even though a lot have recently been sent home. Just today, they announced that 24 Israeli soldiers were killed in Gaza. I have a very close friend who I worked with at the International Crisis Group in Gaza for over a decade, who's been moving from place to place and is unable to get out. The irony is that all these Israeli politicians are screaming from the rooftops that they want to pay Gazans to leave, that they want to empty Gaza, they want to do a so-called voluntary transfer of the Palestinian population out of Gaza. And my friend, we have tried every means to get him out using every connection that I have, other people I know have, and he can't leave. Israel will not give him permission to leave Gaza. So there's a lot of talk about expelling Gazans, and in practice, they're totally trapped and people are paying as much as $11,000 per person to bribe Egyptian officials to get out. And how is Abed doing now with his family? I mean, I, I was going to ask, you know, about, you said there were no repercussions for the, the fire trucks coming so late, but in the book, you did mention some talk about suing the company, at least, who employed this driver who was driving in such a reckless way and during a storm. And did any of the families ever get any compensation for their loss? And is Abed, I mean, now it's, you know, over 10 years since the loss of his son. I can only imagine it, it still reverberates to this day. But, yeah. you know, how does he go forward with this great injustice that he's been dealt? There is a kind of national car accident victims fund that gave money to the families that had blue IDs. And Abed was not eligible for that. And he had to go through a different mechanism to try and get some compensation. And he got a tiny, tiny fraction of what the people with blue IDs got. And, you know, in terms of how he's kind of dealt with it emotionally, I mean, it is, first of all, one of the big differences between him and his wife is something that, that comes up in the book, is that he has really had a strong desire to talk about the accident and to grieve his son and to talk about his grief with me. And his wife has really chose to deal with it in the opposite way. She doesn't want to talk about it. And she would basically not be in the room when he and I were, were meeting. And despite all of the grieving that he's done. I mean, it's it's as fresh as it, as it ever was for him when we were going and giving talks in, in the US and the UK. Every single event that we did where he would recount what happened to him on that day, he would cry and the audience would cry. It's just still very, very raw for him. And, you know, frankly, I, he... He says all the time, you know, I just want to be be with him. I'm, I've lived my life. That's so heartbreaking. Thank you so much, Nathan, for talking to me. Thank you for having me. That was Nathan Thrall. His 
New book is called A Day in the Life of Abid Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.